Good morning, GVF. It's an honor to be here today. Um, I'm really excited to be able to preach the word to you. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, I am Ryan May. I am one of the interns here for the summer, or really the only intern here. And I hope that this passage of scripture will be able to encourage you as much as it has encouraged me. So before we jump in, let's just have a time of prayer and we'll start the message. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the blessing of being able to preach your word, of being able to dive into your truths and not only learn, but be challenged to grow in our walk with you. I pray that you would use me as a vessel and I pray, Lord, that your truth would come through today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Groanings. Groanings. What picture comes to mind when you hear this word? Perhaps for you, it is the groaning of an elderly loved one or a sick loved one. Perhaps despite your desperate prayers to God, your loved one has been struggling and struggling. It seems like there is no possible means of freedom. Perhaps for you, the word groaning implies the groaning of loneliness. In this season of COVID, in this season of isolation, in this season of struggle, you have lacked intimacy and you feel like you are all alone. Or perhaps you have everything that you need on the outside, a nice family, a nice job, everything in line, but you still feel a sense of emptiness, groanings. There's something we can all resonate with in one way or another. We all know what it feels like to groan, to long for something more, to struggle, to feel that something just isn't the way it's supposed to be in this world. The question I want to ask each of you is to think on this one simple thing. Does Christianity legitimately have an answer and a place to work through our pain? Honestly, can the Christian faith truly make sense of our struggle and point us towards some kind of hope and transformation within it? Or are we just throwing around a bunch of cliches and well-wishing? Today, I want us all to contemplate Paul's words in Romans 8, 18 to 30 to engage this very question head on. After going through the gospel that all people are guilty sinners before God, that Christ made a way through his death and his resurrection, that salvation from sin, death, and condemnation comes by faith, and that new life comes through Christ, Paul now sets his mind on the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. Through the Holy Spirit, believers have been set free from sin and death. They've been empowered to walk in a new way of life. And they have been adopted as full heirs within God's family. After a wonderful reminder of the benefits of life in the spirit and a call for believers to live in such a way that aligns with the desires of the spirit rather than the desires of the flesh, Paul engages a powerful yet sobering truth. Let's begin in Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Wait, what did Paul just say? Are you telling me that learning to suffer well actually resembles Jesus quite a bit? And that our struggles are actually integral to our future hope as children of God? Are you saying that these groanings are actually tied to the future glory? 
You might be saying, okay, Paul, that sounds nice. Again, a nice set of cliches. Glory comes through suffering. But what does it actually mean for me? When push comes to shove, it just doesn't seem to add up. I've been struggling in my life for years, and I sure don't seem to be tasting glory or whatever that means. How can you be so confident, Paul? What can honestly ground Christians as they suffer? Well, Paul answers that in the following verses. Let's continue on in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So why can Christians be so confident as they suffer in this life? Well, the answer is that the glory to come is far sweeter. Mankind's redemption and the renewal of all creation makes it all worth it. Let's unpack this a bit. Within this section, Paul is making a simple argument. He's saying, hey, you, follower of Christ, I know you are facing some very hard times. I don't want to diminish that in any way. Your pain is real, and frankly, it's hard. But please, I beg of you, don't let it take your eyes off of what God is doing in you, through you, and all around you. That is and always will be your hope. And guess what? The very creation around you waits on tiptoe for you and your fellow brothers and sisters to finally become all that God has called you to be. You see, your transformation is actually connected to the very redemption of the world around you. Don't give up. Paul is reaching all the way back to the fall here. Due to the first man's sin, all creation, plants, animals, mountains, etc., have been cursed. Paul personifies it in a really interesting way and describes it as being frustrated with its inability to fulfill the purposes God intended it to be. Because of this frustration, it is waiting on its tiptoes. It is stretching its neck. It is peeking to see the children of God be revealed. The key thing that creation is waiting for is children of God to be revealed. It's very interesting. Amazingly, it takes believers taking their place as God's royal children, which is the key for all creation to be set right and in order. Now, in the Old Testament, there's an interesting phrase used to describe those who reigned with God. Those who were given a special task of ruling over creation. That phrase is son of God. The phrase was used for angelic beings, for kings, and for Israel as a nation. But if you've read the Old Testament, then I think you would find out that none of these individuals actually lived into their identities. But here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus came, being the unique son of God, he finally fulfilled this task in his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And now through him, all people, men and women, can become sons of God in the sense that we will be heirs of God and we will reign with him. 
You see, only when the fullness of God's family of kings and queens is revealed, will the everlasting kingdom of God come about. And guess what? Each one of us will have a role to play within it. So you might be asking, okay, that's pretty interesting. That's quite beautiful. And I can see how that might make my suffering a little more bearable, but still, how can I know this will actually come to pass? How can I know this is more than just wishful thinking? Let's continue on in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So how can we be sure that this will actually come to pass? Three ways. First, the collective groaning of believers and creation points to something more. Second, the down payment of the spirit gives us a foretaste of what is to come. And lastly, the eyes of faith allow us to see what is not yet visible and encourage us to wait patiently for it. First off, there's the collective groaning of creation and of believers. And it's very interesting what Paul does here. He connects creation, which is an inanimate object, to a mother about to give birth. And just as a mother giving birth experiences pain and suffering and brokenness leading to joy, he sees that same reality coming to play with creation itself. It is in a state of brokenness and decay and suffering, but in the future we will see the fullness of the new creation come and all of it will be worthwhile. Paul then describes believers also groaning inwardly as they await their redemption. The groaning of believers for the fulfillment of God's promises points to the reality of those very promises. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for the new creation. Past that, though, Paul also mentions the idea of the first fruits of the Spirit. It's because believers have the Spirit that they now groan in the first place. What is this idea of first fruits? Well, it's actually connected to the Old Testament feast of first fruits. And what Old Testament believers would do is they would bring the first of their crop to God, and by doing that, it would symbolize them giving all things to God. And in the same way, just as believers now have the Holy Spirit, we have a down payment, a taste of what the future kingdom will be like when he restores all things. Lastly, Paul emphasizes the concept of hope. In this section, he makes an argument that goes something like this. We've been saved into the hope of resurrected bodies and a renewed heaven and earth. But hope can only be when we do not yet have it. How could you hope if you already had something it wouldn't be hoped for anymore? This is what makes faith so vital. Faith allows us to see what we do not yet have and pushes us to live in such a way that we point our lives towards that future reality. The idea of waiting for it patiently in this passage is not simply sitting back 
and just waiting for God to come. It is acting because of what God has done and what he will do in light of it. Now you might be saying, okay, I can see how the beauty of future glory pushes me to live. I can see how there are strong reasons for that hope, but still, how can I legitimately maintain this faith, walk in light of it and be shaped into the kind of person God wants me to become? I'm weak. I am unable. Does this depend upon my strength alone? What if I'm too weak to actually see this through to the end? Paul will beautifully answer this question as we close out this specific passage of scripture. Starting in verse 26, we see, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So how can I be confident that God will carry this out in me? The Spirit intercedes for us. God is working all things for our good. And your transformation and the transformation of the entire world has been set in motion from eternity's past. As Paul turns the corner towards the glorious praise of God's sovereign work in the redemption of all things, he begins by speaking to man's weakness. In talking about the Spirit, Paul essentially says this, as a person, you will struggle. You won't know what to pray for. You won't always pursue the things of God. You won't always walk faithfully. But that is okay. Take heart, because even when it feels like you were all alone, and even when it feels like you've made the biggest mistake, the Spirit himself is praying to God the Father on your behalf. And the Spirit, who knows the will of God, is praying the very will of God over your life. It's going to come into fruition. So even when you are struggling, God is still doing a work in you. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's amazing. Continuing on with the argument, Paul then focuses on what God's will actually is. It is the good of the believer. Well, what's the good of the believer? But being transformed into the image of Jesus. This is one of the most glorious things about the Christian faith. God does not merely take our successes and use them for good. He also uses the most broken things about our lives, our sins, our pains, our struggles. God uses even that to transform us. It's not that God wants us to love suffering for suffering's sake. No, it is that God wants us to see that the greatest times of struggle can become the greatest opportunities for repentance, the greatest opportunities to draw near to God himself and become more like Christ. Now, just a quick aside on two really cool things in this passage. The first one is the idea of the image of his son. This concept ties all the way back to Genesis where man was made in the image of God. Uh, man was made to rule over creation by submitting to God and was called to reflect him for who he was. He lost this right through sin, 
Nonetheless, in God becoming flesh, Jesus reveals what God is, but also gives humanity a picture of who we are called to become in actually reflecting God once again. Second, the concept of Jesus as firstborn does not mean that he was the first created being, but rather it is his place in the family of God. There's this beautiful reality that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has now inherited all things. Um, In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Great Commission, after Jesus rises from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what does he do with that inheritance? He shares it with his brothers and sisters, with the body of Christ, by calling them to go, to make disciples, to share in that reign, share in that rule, and spread the good news of his victory over evil and over sin. The final hope that we have is that God has been sovereignly working for our place in the divine plan from eternity's past. As we saw, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. He has been working from the very beginning to bring about a people and a plan so that all things will be redeemed. And each one of us, me, you, all of us have a role to play in that. And God has been setting things up in history so that we might confidently take our place amongst his people. If he has done all this, can we really believe that he will not see our salvation through to eternity? So let's ask that question that was asked at the beginning once again. Can the Christian faith truly make sense of our struggle and point us towards some kind of hope and transformation? Or are we left with nothing more than a set of worn out cliches and well-wishing? Well, I think Paul and myself would powerfully say, yes, Christianity does give us a hope. Christianity does give us a place for transformation and redemption, even with our own suffering. Yes, Christianity does make sense of suffering because it gives us a future hope in the renewal of all creation and the redemption of mankind. Yes, Christianity gives us a firm foundation for this hope in the collective groanings of the world, in the first fruits of the spirit, and the eyes of faith. Yes, Christianity gives us a pathway and support to this hope through the Spirit interceding for us, the Father working all things for our good, and the fact that God has been working from eternity's past for this very plan to come into fruition. So, what does this hope mean for us? Maybe you're listening and saying, wow, that's a lot of really cool theology, but what does it mean for my life? What does this mean for me today? For the groaning of a sick loved one, for the groaning of the sting of loneliness, for the groaning of our inner emptiness, what does this mean for me? Well, maybe you are a believer who's been experiencing a great deal of suffering and trials over these past few months. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes fixed on the glory of Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on the hope that you have. Remember the God who is with you and continue to allow him to transform you even in your struggle. Continue to reach out to God even when it feels like you're just screaming to the ceiling. Even when it feels like he is not there. Because remember, even in your brokenness, the spirit himself 
is praying on your behalf. Continue to immerse yourself in the Bible, the story of God, his redemption of the world that has begun and will come to fruition in the future. And the fact that you have a role to play in that beautiful reality. Continue to connect yourselves with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Realize that you need relationships just as much as you need anything else. He is doing something utterly beautiful in you and you are a royal son or daughter who has a place in the grand story of God. Actively wait on God and allow him to do his best work of shaping you to look like Jesus. This doesn't mean you have to hide your pain, your fears, your struggles, and act like you have it all together. In fact, it means the very opposite. Because of what Christ is doing in you, you can be honest about your pain. You can be honest about your struggle to God and to others. And I've been walking through a tough time in my own life, and I know how this is hard, and and it's hurtful, and you don't want to do it. But I encourage you, please walk in that and allow God to shape you through this season. Maybe you're a believer who has not been wrestling through a tough season. And you might say, okay, this was a pretty cool message for someone who's wrestling. And maybe when I struggle, it'll be good for me. But I want to encourage you with something. Would you be an encouragement to your fellow brother or sister who is struggling right now? So often many of us in the church, we don't open up because we don't feel like we have a safe place. Would you be that safe place for someone else? Would you make space? Would you be honest? Would you point your brother or your sister to hope? Maybe you're listening to this and you're not even a believer. And frankly, if that's the case, I appreciate you sticking with me to the end. Maybe you're not a believer, but you resonate with this idea of deep groaning within your own heart. This pressure of the world not being what you truly desire it to be. This deep longing in your very soul. My question to you is, would you consider Jesus Christ? Would you at least consider him? I don't know where you're at. Maybe you are someone who is very skeptical, very angry. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you're someone who is open-minded, unsure, but you really don't know. Maybe you're a spiritual seeker and you're wanting to pursue Christ, but still on the fence about him. I appreciate all of you listening and would encourage each of you to continue your wrestle with God. Either way, I ask you, would you consider the good news of the Christian faith? God created us to live alongside of him, to rule over creation, to love him, to know him. We rebelled against him. Our forefathers did and each of us has done in our own lives. We have created our own kingdom rather than submitting to him. And both us and the whole creation have felt the effects of that separation from God. And despite God working through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they did not fulfill their call to be a light to all nations. And we see that Christ came. God came down in the form of man due to human brokenness and an undying love for people like you and like me. He desired us so much that he came to live the life humans failed to live, to bring about God's good reign once again, to die for the sins of humanity, to defeat death in his resurrection, and to now reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And now the call for all of us is to turn from the kingdom of self and to believe in Jesus as Savior, 
the one who saves us from our sin, from death, from evil, and also as Lord, the one we submit to as our king. If you do this, you can find eternal life that begins this very day and lasts forever. The Holy Spirit spoken about in this text will no longer be some faraway idea, but a personal experienced reality. This hope of a universal redemption and of the redemption of your own body will no longer be some faraway idea, but a personal hope for you. Suffering itself will have a purpose and your life will be made new through relationship with God. So would you at least consider this call? Would you at least consider the invitation? Now let's close out with a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the blessing of your word, the blessing of your truth, the blessing of your gospel. That Lord, you came, you died, you rose, and you invite us into new life. I pray, Lord, that wherever we are in our faith journey, we would be able to continue to pursue you with our doubts, our questions, our fears, our struggles, and that you, Lord, would work all things out for the good of those who love you. So in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.